and welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. Happy Black Panther opening weekend. This is a very exciting weekend uh, for all of those who are big fans of Afrofuturism. Um, and I am very happy to be back in 2018 doing the Afrofuturist podcast. We have some really great guests this year. We have some really great conversations. I want to do a show just talking about the Black Panther with a bunch of people who have been on the show before, um, uh, including our resident Afrofuturist, Lonnie Brooks, who has knocked it out of the park with these first couple of episodes. Um, This one is a really good one, so I want to get right to the nitty gritty. The guest we have on today, her name is Natalie Nixon. And Natalie Nixon is um, an innovator, an entrepreneur, an anthropologist, a lecturer. um, And she has a company called Figure Eight Thinking. And Figure Eight Thinking is really about how to innovate a product or how to innovate a service or how to innovate an idea using a bunch of tools that she will talk about um, in this podcast, one of them being uh, improvisation. Now, the reason why improvisation is kind of special to me is because, and we talk about this as well in the podcast, uh, I started out as a jazz musician, trained as a jazz musician. I also started out doing improv um, comedy and um, improvisation has been a very strong part of me and how I make up what I make up when I'm not doing the Afrofuturist podcast and it's something that folks don't really understand that you need a lot of training to do and that training comes in what Natalie calls a chaotic system where there is order in the chaos and jazz is a perfect analogy for a chaotic system and she goes into that she goes into her background as an anthropologist she goes into her background as uh, a fashion designer and a clothing designer which um, she has a long history a long familial history uh, with doing and she looks at clothing as wearable structural engineering Um, she is brilliant brilliant when it comes to her ideas about how to innovate how to think and how to see and interpret. Um, you can find her at figureeightthinking.com. You can also listen to her TED Talk on YouTube, which is phenomenal. And it was really uh, inspirational and it made me really excited to do this interview. I've been on a, on a design kick lately um, because I realized what I do and what I've been doing has been more akin to design than anything else. So um, I've really embraced this idea of being able to design what you do um, and thinking in the way that Natalie illustrates um, really just upped my game just by talking to her for this short amount of time. So please give a warm welcome and enjoy this interview with Miss Natalie Nixon. The future. Natalie Nixon, thank you for coming on the Afrofuturist podcast. Hi, Ahmed. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. And I'm glad we're we're talking to you as well, because, you know, a lot of times we have uh, scientists, technologists, programmers. And within all of that, there is this thing that nobody really talks about and no one I think articulates it as well as you do when you're talking about design and creativity and creativity tends to be this nebulous idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it would be really a, a really good place to start, you know, with this idea of what is creativity and is it quantifiable? Hmm. So, um, yeah, thank you for including my perspective in um, all of your conversations. I, I think it's always so interesting that when we think about the future or conceptions of the future, some, sometimes it's like, I, I hate this term soft skills, but it's yeah. like the soft skills are always missing from the future, which is so Absolutely. bizarre to me yeah. because it's core to being human. 
So it's like the humanity is left out of the future sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So in terms of how I define creativity, I have given a lot of thought to creativity. And I actually, on my website, Figure 8 Thinking, I have a, um, a visual uh, draft up of, of what I hope is a somewhat simple diagram of how I've started been thinking about creativity. I think a lot of times when people talk about innovation, they're really talking about creativity. I think mm. the word innovation is overused a bit. And I think the reason why we're not using the word creativity more is because, A, I don't think we really understand what creativity is. And B, um, creativity has been ghettoized it to be in the realm of um, kind of the traditional arts, where it certainly is. But to be an, an incredible engineer, um, an, uh, an amazing scientist, um, and a really thought-provoking entrepreneur, you have to be awesomely creative. Mm -hmm. So the way I define creativity is I think it is a system. And it's a system grounded in curiosity. Curiosity is the baseline. It's the non-starter. And we don't really understand curiosity a whole lot. But I think curiosity is a mindset. And it's a capacity um, to have a certain level of humility and open-mindedness to to um, inquire and to and to explore, so I think that the 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 baseline context of of, of the system of, of creativity is curiosity, and then embedded in that, I talk about cre creativity as consisting of improvisation. And improvisation, um, I I my entree into improvisation was was as a kid listening to my dad's uh, Blue Note jazz records and so my all my exposure to jazz music and then I've, I was trained as a as a modern dancer I studied Horton technique and so post postmodern dancers always get into a bit of improv so I, got, I had some some experience with improv that way uh, in my physicality um, and then later in my doctoral studies I was I was working um, looking at the Ritz Carlton hotel organization I was trying to understand the way they design experiential services and my data I'm a qualitative researcher my data was telling me you know there were all these references to when it works it flows it's like jazz it turns out there's an entire body of literature on improvisational organizations so Improvisation is a complex system. Jazz is a complex system. It is a chaotic system. And it needs both chaos and order. Hmm. So so the first one of the initial elements of creativity is improvisation. It's that ability to ebb and flow between um, structure and, and minimal and minimal structure. And the other exposure, of course, I had uh, to improvisation was as a teenager in the 80s being immersed in hip hop. And it's so interesting to have come up in the time of, of hip hop, rap and hip hop, because um, like so many awesome movements, you, you don't even realize what you are a part of until, you know, some hindsight. The other component of creativity to me is intuition. And um, intuition, I believe, is pattern recognition. So my investigation about intuition was I would hear a lot of startup leaders and entrepreneurs talk about when they would be talking about their origin story, they would say something like, you know, something just told me to do the deal, even though everyone else was telling me, you know, don't do it. And or else they would say something like, um, you know, yeah, I decided to work with her over him over the, even though her pedigree wasn't as sniffy. And I thought, well, what is that something? And I think that nudge is intuition. And it's not something that business schools teach. It's not something that we, we've spent a whole, I mean, psychologists have and behavioral economics have when you're trying to understand, you know, judgment and choices of behavior. But so intuition is really interesting to me. So I, I believe creativity is a system grounded in curiosity and it requires improvisation, intuition, and that leads to insight or impact. So there is a real, um, outcome of creativity there's a real added value of creativity is it measurable i don't know i'm not really sure how to measure it that 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 isn't all that to me is not always the the most interesting question for me but maybe it's measurable and you know in terms of of impact uh that in terms of like a cascading effect of of what follows after a creative act or process etc 
Um, yeah, I, I love all of it, especially when you're talking about improvisation, because um, I my education's in jazz. I'm a jazz drummer. And I was uh, a jazz musician so since Art I was. Art Blakey all the way, huh? Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of um, Art Blakey uh, in influences. Elvin Jones was a big influence, and um, my teacher, his name is Warren Smith. He used to be in a in a percussion ensemble with Max Roach called Boom. Wow. So I got to hang out with all the cats when I yeah. was when I was a kid. I was fourteen. Love Max Roach. Um, and I, there's a there's a whole bunch. I want to really pull out the jazz improvisation part of everything that you're saying because it's um, it's been integral in my life, uh, not only as a musician but also as an actor doing improv comedy. So um, I, I've, there's a lot of um, cross platform information when it comes to creativity and the improvisational method because I've you know I've really lived that. Um, but before you defined uh, what creativity was, how did you feel, um, how did you see yourself? Did you see yourself as a creative person? And how did you go from studying anthropology um, and then to design? Because a lot of folks uh, think and I think this is part of the old system of thinking that you start as a thing and you stay as the thing. And mm. it's difficult to transition into something else. And when you do transition into something else, it's a big deal. Like it's a life change, you know. So um, do you did you think of yourself as a creative person? And if so or if not. Did that idea of creativity and that being this free flowing form of, uh, you know, way of thinking move you from anthropology to design? Yes, I have always thought of myself as a creative person. And so my problem was never that uh, I was staying in the same kind of line. My problem is that I was so attracted to so many areas. And it wasn't until I, I probably hit my early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, when I finally became comfortable with the fact that that's who I am. I mm. thrive in interdisciplinary spaces. And I was actually just this morning having breakfast with someone and they were, they were asking me about how I started my business. And I kind of went back to um, a moment in college uh, when my parents gave me a huge gift, an amazing gift. It wasn't monetary. Actually, it's probably translated into some mon a lot of monetary gifts. But um, I called home as a sophomore in college upset because I did not know what I wanted to major in and I had to declare in a few weeks. First world problems. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a but, sexy problem to uh, have. Yeah, everything's relative as we learned in yeah. cultural anthropology. But um, yeah, and I'm bemoaning how, you know, I almost felt economics and I'm bored by poli sci and so reduces people to numbers. And, and my pop is like, uh, okay, well, what are you enjoying? And I started to describe these Africana studies classes where I'm learning philosophy and sociology from a different perspective and um, and political movements and, and literature, et cetera. It's like, okay. And my mom's like, what else? And I said, well, I just took this amazing anthropology class, et cetera. So he listened to me and they say, well, that's what you should study. And I said, uh, what? <laughs> so they said, yeah, you should study what you love. And my father said, opportunities will come to you. You're going to have to turn down opportunities. And I said, uh, so to be clear, you're okay if I study Africana studies, maybe double major in anthropology? They're like, yeah. They, don't worry about it. That's what you should do. That's what you're enjoying. And it was a weight that lifted off me. And my parents are right. I've had to turn down opportunities. And there's something about when you follow your heart and you do what you love, no one has to tell you to stay up longer, get up earlier, uh, you know, work later because you carry an energy about you. I mean, the, the work feeds you. It's, it's like this really nice um, uh, synchronous 
type of experience. So studies like anthropology allowed me to be super creative intellectually because anthropology gives you a lens that I call the worm's eye view of society. Uh, you know, sociology and political science are awesome, but they're more of that, that bird's eye view. And I was much more interested in understanding ritual and artifact and more smaller discrete units of society um, from that perspective. And there's also a very nice element of what's called reflexivity in anthropology, sometimes ad nauseum, but, you know, anthropologists try to be mindful of, you know, where am I in this whole process and, and where are my biases, you know, getting involved, et cetera. So for me, that was the first gift of being told, study what you love. The second gift was discovering cultural anthropology. It's amazing. It, it, it actually has been the platform that's carried me into, and I worked primarily in business and the fashion industry, um, later as an academic, um, and definitely now in, in my work in design, design strategy, because it, 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 it teaches you to have a point of view. It teaches you where perspective comes from. It teaches you how to cultivate a point of view. And it actually became a really seamless platform and excuse <laughs> for me to follow all of my lines of, of curiosity. Mm. Uh, so I was able to be hyper creative um, in that way. And um, I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on black women's hair culture. And I did that because I studied abroad my junior year in Brazil. And my mom would, I asked my mom, would you send me copies of Essence magazine? I want to show some of my new friends out here, you know, how we do it up in the States. And, and some of my Afro-Brazilian friends, they said, why do so many black women straighten their hair? Mm -hmm. And I thought, ah, I, that's, you know what? I get, I had never seen it from their eyes. And when you, back in the eighties, when you look through Essence, like every, every ad, a black woman had her hair, you know, chemically altered. And that got me into this really in, big interest in, in that aesthetic. And, that, and, that, and, and that's why I ended up um, studying that in, for my thesis. But, you know, for me, that was a very creative process um, to, to figure out what were the questions that I had? What would those questions then lead to? Um, in design, um, I, I started my own uh, hat design business when I was in my 20s living in New York, really out of need. Um, and that's another story, but, but, you know, that led to my, my, my having, um, work, work, working in the fashion industry as an entrepreneur later in global fashion sourcing. Um, and then I taught fashion management, um, as a professor. So there, my creativity, uh, was, was really fed. Um, I then naively earned a PhD while working full time mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and in design management. And so the creativity piece there was so wonderfully captured in the field of design management, design strategy, because it's an incredibly interdisciplinary field. So that's a very long answer to uh, how I have dealt with the kind of either or proposition that people tend to feel um, I've always, I just, I learned very early in my life just to do me and to be comfortable with all the different, uh, aspects of life and, and society that I was curious about. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's incredibly inspiring, especially, you know, when you are someone who has a talent and people see that talent and then you expand that talent into other forms. And I always say, you know, creativity transcends. You can always move to whatever you're interested in as long as you keep that creative yes. foundation that you've always had. Yes. Um, but being in a creative field, there is this idea that you either have it or you don't. Hmm. Um, do you believe there's any merit to that? Can you teach someone who claims they are not creative to be creative? I think you can. I think to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. It, it means being hardwired to be creative. And I think part of what's happening when th those comments are made is that we're kind of defaulting back to our educational system and people like Sir Ken Robinson 
and others have done a really good job of describing this horrible, precipitous decline in interest in creativity among children. You know, so like in kindergarten class, you ask kids, how many of you want to be artists? And all everyone raises their hand. I want to be actors or painters or dancers. Get to fifth grade and maybe it's half the class. Maybe it's fourth grade, half the class. Ninth grade, they're like the loner, marginal kids in the back of the classroom who are the weird ones who are like, you know, I, you know, I, I'm interested in being an artist. So part, part of what's happening that, that we now are reckoning with is our educational system actually is kind of drumming out those voices and that inclination. Um, and, and there's a, there's a, it's, a, it's complicated. There's a lot of reasons why that's happening. Um, but I think part of it is just the way we're, we're socialized. We're socialized to, um, to, to assume that following um, kind of being practical is, is security and being practical uh, is kind of the name of the game. Um, when in fact, uh, ultimately, if you don't, if you don't do what you're drawn to do, you won't get very good at it. You won't excel. And that actually will not uh, uh, translate into any sort of real monetary uh, value. But let's, let's let's say I'm wrong. Let's say we're, they have hundreds of cases of people who are, who are working um, in careers where they're getting paid boohoo money, crazy amounts of money. Um, you know, but, you know, I think at least 50% of them would admit to you on the side as a sidebar conversation are they really fulfilled eh, maybe maybe not maybe they make excuse for themselves that the money you know replaces that um i believe that um being creative being being ha having well-being your life however you want to define that the two are not mutually exclusive and i think we've, we've kind of uh made them mutually exclusive um i i think that you know, having a background in training in dance, certainly, and you as a musician, as an actor, you know there are some people who just have something, right? Absolutely. And that, that's on a soul level, on a spirit level. You can have all the technique and technical training in the world and, and, and execution. Um, if you don't bring that soul and that spirit into that technique, then Yes, totally. I, 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 I agree that then you can begin to slice and dice the extent to how uh, that creative energy uh, is, t is touching others and it has an impact on others. But I, I actually do believe that given the space and time, um, everyone can be creative, but it, it may not necessarily be in, in the same way. It's not, it's not necessarily going to be in the, in the arts. I think people who are amazing in mathematics have and a capacity for abstract thinking that is incredibly creative. And we know that that same capacity for abstract thinking has to be, becomes evident in people who are, who are brilliant painters and musicians and, and dancers, et cetera. You touched earlier on um, us being put in these boxes when we are being trained as children and growing up and in our educational facilities and I, I had always had a problem with education, even now, you know, I, I have a problem with how we learn and, and what we learn and the way we learn. And um, you being an educator and being in that field for quite a while, how do you think education should go? Where should we put, what should we completely wipe off the slate and say no more of that? And then what should we put in its place as far as education? Because we are learning and we have the ability to learn at such an exponential rate. And in so many ways um, that are, are so much faster than how we used to learn, how, how, how can you justify a semester? How can you justify a 12 week curriculum? You know, it doesn't seem like it, it works anymore. So how, well, I, how do I, we learn? Like what, what do we do now? I totally agree. Uh, I was a professor for 16 years, and I actually resigned from my, that 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 career in the spring of 2017. Um, there were multiple factors that went into my choice mm -hmm. to to move on from academia, which a lot of people looked at as a kind of a safe space. But um, 
I don't, I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions built in there. I, I actually I took a great workshop at the Institute for the Future in June of 2017. And I don't remember if it was one of the, the leaders of the workshop or a colleague, a participant, someone said, you know, we forget that plans are total fiction. Yes. You know, a budget, it's fiction. But we, um, so there's a lot of fictions that we have about what is safe and what is secure. I mean, one of the reasons I decided to move on from academia is because, and I, and I actually spoke about this at, at a conference sponsored by Blackboard um, summer 2017, which is a tech uh, organization. It was to their education clients. And I was talking about the future of learning. Mm. Um, I don't believe the business model of higher education is sustainable. And I don't believe it's sustainable from a cost perspective on the supply side or the demand side. You know, anytime us proletariat middle-class schmucks are trying to put together 30K a year to send our, our, our kids to college and the IVs are costing upwards of, you know, 55, 60 plus thousand dollars per year, this is not sustainable coupled with the debt that people are accruing um, and getting um, additional formal education um, and sometimes not necessarily with the return on that investment of being able to, to get employment where you know, they don't have to live in their parents' home, they can afford their bills and rent, et cetera. So for those two, so I was seeing this coming down the pike really quickly. I was seeing a lot of disruptors um, from digital happening. So everyone from my 78-year-old mom to my 17-year-old stepdaughter are teaching themselves things on YouTube. Right. So more and more, I was questioning, well, what exactly again is our added value yeah. <laughs> as, as professors? You know, right. So we have to really think about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, it was a question. Uh, we thought MOOCs were going to totally disrupt things. Turns out that they don't, because it turns out people still want high touch in that person-to-person -person, um, experience. I think one of the things we're going to see a movement back to is the, is the apprenticeship model. Mm -hmm. I think people really do learn by doing. I think that there are more and more opportunities for number one, we're seeing more companies becoming truly learning organizations. They're developing their own curricula to teach high performing employees X, Y, Z that they realize is pertinent to what they need them to be able to do coupled with, an executive ed certificate from, you know, fill in the blank Ivy League institution. So um, for those reasons, I, I was kind of seeing the writing on the wall um, that, you know, I, I started something called, I created the strategic design MBA program. I was on a call once with some colleagues who we were all design thinking practitioners and researchers. And it was a call um, actually with IBM design and um, someone who had started there, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he started, he was head, hitting up their, their, their curriculum. And I got off the call, it was awesome. And I got off the call and I realized, jeepers, my competitors are not other MBA programs. My competitors are forward-thinking companies that mm -hmm. you know, are, are offering cool, cool relevant curricula um, in a timely way. So, and every, you know, people like Seth Godin started the yeah. Alt-MBA. Um, so there, there's, there's just so many other cool, interesting ways to learn experientially, to learn in, uh, on, on, uh, with, a, with a price point that is manageable and affordable, to learn in more flexible ways. I don't know that higher education will be nimble enough as an industry to not just react, but to respond. It's happening in pockets, but I, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to happen as like a sea of change. Do you think that the higher education credential is still going to be considered the, the, the thing to have in order to advance in the workplace? I think that as these shifts happen and as higher education um, takes a, a different position in the queue, um, I think that's going to affect how much people are impressed if you have a PhD or if you have... Um, you know, um, well, 
I mean, I think it still mattered to be credentialed to be a doctor and, and um, a JD, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think I, my short answer is I don't think it's going to matter in the same way. I don't know how it's go- to, what, to what extent it's going to be shaken up, but people feel safe with credentials, right? People feel safe with, you know, people where he's been experimenting with, we call them badges. Are they, you know, whatever people, we need some sort of marker to designate, okay, you know, X from Y institution, therefore I can trust you. But maybe the institution will now be a tribe, right? Maybe it will be kind of a tribe of a community that from which you've learned. You know, I saw something that was so touching to me the last time I visited, I've been able to visit the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture twice now. It's, it's a phenomenal experience it's it's my favorite museum right now um because i think it's so well designed but there's a moment where it's it's an area of the museum where they're talking about african-americans and um medicine and health and healthcare, and it's this film loop that keeps going showcasing a black woman who was a midwife in a very rural rural area of either Georgia or North Carolina, but a southern state. And this is probably in the 1940s that this is done, and it and it was like this pseudo documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was it was kind of like she had lines, obviously, but she wasn't a real actor. She was a, she was a midwife. But what was fascinating to me was her expertise, and she was this connector and this bridge between the white male MD physician and these women who with her, they had trust. They had a certain confidence. She um, understood and anticipated their questions in a way that, it, that the traditionally trained MD could not. And there was something so precious and amazing about the role of someone like the black midwife it, at those at, during the times of the segre- of segregated United States, mm-hmm. where um, she was an expert, she was incredibly um, intelligent and skilled in her ability to improvise in the moment to deal with some sort of of, of um, medical um, dilemma. So I'm saying that to say we we, there, we have history to look at to see times where expertise does not come always um, in these in these formal ways that we've, we've, we've come to be used to. Right. Absolutely. Um, you were talking about the, the African-American Museum, the Smithsonian uh, Museum in D.C. And, you know, I have not yet visited it and I'm looking forward to it. My parents have been twice and my sister and and her husband and her children who live in the area i think go every weekend or something like that's how good it is um uh, and everybody talks about the experience and everyone talks about how how uh incredibly transformative the experience is in when you walk into the museum and you know even black people who have been black all their lives they go wow i didn't i had no idea um and it got me to thinking about this idea of experience and what is an experience and um, how would you describe one? And a lot of it has to do with the design aesthetic of the experience that you're dealing with. So how would you describe an experience and what disseminates a good experience from a bad experience? And I know this is kind of a subjective, you know, question, however, if there are tenets to creativity, and, and I want to talk about the Frank Barrett heuristic as well. Um, if there are tenets to creativity and there are, you know, rules to improvisation and design, what would be an experience and what's a good experience and a bad experience using that framework, using that paradigm? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Hard question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so experiences are intangible and they can be designed absolutely and unlike products 
I mean, there is a blurred line, I think, between services and experiences. Um, but but one of the one of the one of the key tenets of an experience is that it it the um, the u the end users sensorial um, touch points are, are are factored in um, in a way that is a bit more heightened, I would say, than if we're talking about you know only delivering. Um, a product like a piece of furniture or, or a smartphone. I mean, certainly elements of, of sensorial design are, are part of it, but because experiences are so intangible, you have to, it requires you to start from that intangible piece of how we, we live and how we move through an environment. So, there has to be rapt attention to first studying and understanding, um, questioning our assumptions about, so let's just take the, the example of, of a museum and specifically the Smithsonian's um, National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Um, the, so for example, the, the entry point into the museum is to get into what feels like a freight elevator <laughs> mm-hmm. and descend to the bottom of the museum. And as you're doing that, years are painted on the wall and, and you're starting, I don't, I for, I'm sorry, I forget when they start, maybe they, let's say they start when the museum opened, was it like in 2015 or 2016 when it opened? Yes. And then it gets down to like the eighties, 1965, you know, really key years that, that are important for African-American history all the way down to 1500s when the first um, Africans were were brought to uh, the shores of the United States. That initial experience is transformative because you're like, hang on, we're about to get into something here because right. it's quiet. It's eerily feeling like, hmm, I wonder what this felt like to be packed into a slave ship because you're really tight, right? So they considered space, they considered temperature, they considered visual cues. Um, there is some music playing when when you when you're when you're approaching the elevator. So there's there's element of sound. Um, so so the other part about experiences is, is that while the designer has in mind an initial beginning point and end point, an experience really has this cascading effect. It can really go on far beyond. Um, uh, you know, leaving the, the, the physical structure of, in this case, the museum. And the other cool part of experiences is that they can be converted into all sorts of tangible and intangible things, such as conversations or uh, a motivation to um, try to bring awareness in your company now about diversity, right? Or um, what if we, um, given our experience in, in, in that museum, what if we try to do something similar in our city, et cetera, right? So there is this wonderful cascading effect that can also happen with experiences because the, the interpretation of it has so many nodes based on all the individuals who, who, who walk through it and who were touched by it. So what brought you to um, the Frank Barrett heuristic, because you talk a lot about wow. that in your in your lectures, and then you you talk about the chaotic system. Like, how did you find that? What was the thing yeah. that brought you to that? So Frank Barrett, it, I I so, you know, when I first started describing comments from my data to my PhD advisor, she said, "Oh, well, you've got to go on and read about improvisational organizations," and it turns out there's a whole body of literature on theatrical improv. And then there's a whole body of literature on jazz improv. And Frank Barrett is someone who has done a lot of writings, a thought leader in that space. He is a jazz musician himself. And he also teaches um, out in San Diego. I think it's a Naval Academy, but I'm, I'm, don't quote me on that. And um, so I was really led to his work by doing all the literature review and doing a, a lot of reading. Um, the complexity theory part is what I then began to really um, expand upon 
um, because I think there might have been a reference to it as a complex system. And then when I did more reading about complexity theory and chaos theory, that's how I got to more of the, the writing and work about chaotic systems. A chaord is actually this word that D. Hock, the founder of, of the Visa credit card company, thought of. So what I, what I was putting together, my mishmash that I was putting together was, was Barrett's seven principles of jazz improvisation, which he was applying to, to organizations, merged it with, with um, chaos theory, chaotic systems thinking, and put it in the context of design, um, which, you know, duh, design requires a very chaotic process and of, of going back and forth between structure and chaos. And chaos is, is, is randomness. Order is having some sort of structure. So um, what I love about the, the Frank Barrett principles is that they're, they're, they're simple. Um, there's a, and there's a direct connection you can always find between the way a jazz trio, a jazz quartet, a jazz quintet um, behaves. And then the fun part is, is figuring out either where do you see that in your own organization, but even better, if you don't see it, how might you start to design that into your organization? Can you go through the Frank Barrett principles really quickly? Just blast sure. through the seven. Yes. Um, so the Frank Barrett principles include things such as um, embracing errors, um, which, you know, in jazz, there's no such thing really as a mistake. There's it's much more about the build. Um, there's a principle called provoking competence which, um, you know, if you've ever, you, you are a jazz musician and if you've ever um, seen a, a, a jazz performance, there's always that moment when after a musician does a solo, there's kind of an offering to the other musician to respond. You're provoking competence. You want them to see if they can one-up you. That's the provoking competence part. Minimal structures is a third point of Barrett 7. Minimal structures is all about um, well, if you think about some jazz compositions, you might know the key you're going to play in, the chord progression, there's a beginning, there's a middle point, there's an end. What happens in between is the magic. So that's that's the minimal structure piece. Distributed task has much more to do with, um, well, um, it, it's kind of rearranging um, who's the leader, who's the follower. So if you think of someone like Art Blakey, right? He was a drummer. He was always in the back, mm -hmm. yet he was the leader and he had no problem having other people in the forefront, right? So redistributing the way you work, where you work, um, is something that jazz musicians are very comfortable with, sometimes really out of scarce resources and out of need, you know, you're in cramped spaces. Um, retrospective sense-making. Sense-making is actually a sociological term that comes from a sociologist in Carl Weick. And sense-making is all about making meaning and purpose. Well, the way jazz musicians uh, create meaning and purpose is they, they pay homage to the past. Um, and so there's this wonderful tradition and legacy in jazz music um, that's very mindful of who's come before, even if you recognize that the root of jazz are is the Negro spirituals, which led to the blues, which you know led to jazz. Um, then there's hanging out, which is that social atmosphere of, of jazz musicians. There's so much. I mean, if you read any sort of jazz musicians biography um, or autobiography, there was so much that happened in the in between moments. You know, on the tour bus, in the hallways, practicing on a break, just kind of hanging out in, in backstage. So hanging out really can be very productive. That was a big um, deal for me, hanging out. What did you say? Hanging out was a big deal for me. Um, Explain more. Um, and I don't think people really, and, and that was one of the, the seven that I've heard you talk about that I don't think people really understand because it's not just being there, right? Hanging out, you were absorbing all of this information that you would not have gotten had you just gone to the club and listened to the music or pl played the record or been in a room with a bunch of other people who don't play. Hanging out was about relaying history, you know, telling those stories, um, but 
telling the intricacies in the stories that aren't in the book or in the documentary um, and process looking at how um, these jazz musicians came up with what they came up with and how and watching them make mistakes and watching them say, nope, that's not going to work. Yes, this will work. And then coming together and listening to one another. So hanging out was a a huge deal and it really formed who I was as an artist uh, later on in life, more so than uh, I, I recognized at the point. Oh, you're right. You're right. And I know in, um, in black culture, especially there is this whole element of, um, especially if you are junior to people, if you're younger, as long as you're quiet, yeah. you know, there's a lot that you can pick up. Absolutely. There's a lot that you can absorb. Right. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of, just, just kind of hanging out, being there, um, piping in maybe every now and then, or if you're asked to, but there's so much to observe. You're absolutely right. You're spot on. It's all about the stories, the exchange. It's kind of observing how uh, one musician might go off to the corner and how they're practicing, how the scales that they're going over. Um, it's the in-between bits. It's the part that you don't see on stage that is the infrastructure of how the performance comes to be. It's their it's yeah. their connection to each other. It's their synergy and and um, friendship and um, beef with each other yeah. that that has all been bubbling up backstage or on the tour bus it, or you know in the waiting moments that comes alive and it's part of the production of the music. There's also encouragement and um, there's I, also I, what the encouragement was a big. Yes. Thing for me, and, and you know, you could that's off also an offshoot of mentorship, which I think is very, very much a part of hanging out. And I know you tell a story about you wrote to um, the an anthropologist at Spelman College, right? And she wrote yes. back to you, and that was and yeah. that was very uh, that was a very influential part in your learning. I had this, I had a very similar story when I went to uh, rehearsal with my drum teacher, Warren Smith who had played with Monk, he played with Mingus, and then he was with Max Roach and Um Boom. And and this was the first time I met Max Roach, and I was 14 years old. We were in some basement in some building in New York City. Um, And, you know, drums everywhere, and everybody was in the room. And then Max walks in the room, and he was huge. Like, he's a he was a big man. Or maybe he was big to me, because I was just so, you know... Uh, enamored of him but he walks in the room and he says what's up to everybody and he looks at everybody and then he looks at me right and he's like he sees this young blood in the room and he walks up to me and he puts out his hand and I shake his hand and he goes yeah you're strong drummer should be strong and I was like oh Uh man Max Roach said I was strong and even with those words that encouraged me to practice it encouraged me to strive it encouraged me to be better and 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 do what i do you know so you know that being in the environment is so no you're you're right that encouragement is is everything and that woman was janetta b cole janetta b who cole. is an anthropologist right. at the time she was president of spelman and now she's actually the, the president or executive director president i don't know what the correct title is of the smithsonian's national museum of african art so kind of coming full circle Wonderful. but it, that was an incredible moment for me um she did not know me from a can of paint and mm-hmm. for her to um respond to my to my letter because i was so encouraged like i didn't know anthropologists could be black women who wore lip gloss and manicures you know i (laughs) i i I thought it i mean and i was i was embarrassed by how ignorant my uh understanding of anthropologists were at that time in my life i i caught myself in realizing that I thought anthropologists were old white dudes who dug around the dirt in African villages and were on National <laughs> Geographic. Like that's literally, that had been my visual, uh, my unconscious, yeah. I, I did not see myself reflected in that space. And when I was required to read her anthology, anthropology for the 90s, and I'm standing in line at the bookstore and I turn the book over and there's a photograph of Janetta B. Cole who looked more like my mom and my aunts than anyone who I would have ever imagined was an anthropologist. It, 
it changed my life. There is a seventh principle. The last principle of Barrett Seven is something called solo and support, which is, mm-hmm. I love that also because it's really about the opportunity to let others shine. Yeah. Uh, and then and then where you come into support and knowing when to come. Support. That to me is what's so magical about jazz musicians and the jazz ensemble is that knowing of when a musician is, is like, needs to peter out it's yeah. ready to peter out when you come back in to support them um when you let them shine and, and i mean I, I think it's beautiful i think it's it's just something that so those those seven principles i think as you as we've you know been chatting about them you can you can clearly see how much organizations could learn from that yeah what do you think is a as a principle that organizations don't use enough of of those seven of those seven embracing errors yeah because because um we make mistakes every single day you know and but but then what ends up happening is that we get into like a a kind of a benign shaming culture or uh no one ends up really being authentic because there's kind of this this uh this penal vibe that that's going on or Mm -hmm. leadership doesn't really Seem to mean it, even though they say, "Oh, we value mistakes," you know. But like, oh, prove it. Like, what's some what's a mistake you've made recently, right? So, you know, there are some amazing organizations and companies out there that are really um, uh, doing what they say. But, but you know, embracing errors is fundamental. Being human, it's fundamental to discovery. It's how we learn. All of us, I think, know our biggest learning moments have come from some really big mistakes we've made and, and, or, or misses or having to revise over and over and over and over again. So I think that any organization that can um, really try to support people uh, in um, making mistakes, um, learning from them. The Ritz-Carlton actually, I believe, does a phenomenal job in that because they have this mnemonic that they go through every single day at every single team meeting um around the world which is a um acronym called mr bibs mm-hmm. and so at every 10 minute meeting they ask to go through what, what are, what's the mistake a revision a breakdown um an efficiency and a variation that happened and, and like okay so that happened to anyone else ever what did you do to remedy it if no one has an answer they post it on in their intranet and they ask colleagues from around the world to chime in. And that really begins to make it not such a big deal. It's something that you're gonna to touch upon every single day. You don't you don't dwell on it. And they reward people for ch- chipping in and helping each other. What's one of the seven that you think is overused that you can go, okay, y'all, you can chill out on, you know, huh. something. Um, Maybe I think people might misinterpret the provoking competence bit. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we, we in, in, organ, in work organizations, especially more corporate environments, the provoking competence is it becomes about like assessment and review and, and, and maybe that's like a way people are trying to provoke competence, but it, it kind of gets too much in my view into the rail guards of what you're assuming need to be the basis of evaluation to to provoke someone to be better. Um, and on the other hand, provoking competence comes in the form of what you were just describing, encouragement, right? Yeah. So also sometimes we don't see enough of that in, in our organizations. Do you think the future is missing um, a design element? Uh, do you mean by that missing the approach of designers and, and missing the the um, expertise of designers? When you're when you when you're forecasting for the future, when you see things that are going to happen ten years, twenty years, a hundred years from now, it's been my experience, and you know, and I've I've always been into the future and and, and looking into future and forecasting that the thing that we talk about the most is technology. We talk about what human beings won't be doing because robots are going to take over, right? And we we tend to humanize these robots. And then, you know, of course, there's this 
singularity where the robots are going to come alive and we're going to have Skynet and Terminator is going to be running around like little Arnold Schwarzenegger brothers and killing everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the thing that I think about all the time is, well, somebody has to design the Terminator. Like (laughs) we're we're not talking about that. You know, we see all of these flying cars and like, you know, there's a mindset behind that there, you know, and there's a, a way to get there. There's a method to get there. Like your car doesn't automatically fly. It has to actually know how to drive by itself first. So do you think that when we're, when we start talking about the future, we're not really talking about designing the future. We're just there. I agree. Absolutely. And part of that's a reflection of how much we we take design for granted. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, good design is excellent when you don't even realize it. Like that's actually a signifier of amazing design. That it's it's the, the experience, the use of the product, the, um, the your time engaging in the service is so seamless that's amazing design right so on the right. one hand it, it, it's it, it should be um a bit invisible also we are kind of in a, in a time where design is becoming a bit more elevated right you know fast company is constantly talking about design and designers and designers are part of their 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 groovy hip um featured um accomplished people that they will recognize um design has become kind of a sexy field to go into. Do people really understand what's involved in it? I don't understand. I don't think they, they, they necessarily do always. And I think whether you're talking about architecture or product design, industrial design, graphic design, UX design, fashion design, what's wonderful about design is that it really require requires this uh, intersection for you to engage in your aesthetic and artistic abilities and capabilities and it's it's some engineering and 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 science that's involved as well i mean i always say i I, my entree into design was 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 through sewing uh which is which growing up in in our home my mom taught me and my sister how to sew women in my my, that side of my family are very gifted in the fiber arts and my mom was a weaver and like quilters in my family etc so sewing was functional art um years later i realized to be a, 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 to, to construct one-dimensional fabric that will go on a three-dimensional form and move with the form and um, flow and and tell a story is, is 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 it's an engineering feat and we don't credit fashion designers as to be engineers but they are they yeah. totally are and um, yeah so part of the reason why we're, we don't factor in design to the future because we're not even factoring design into our present state so in some ways it kind of makes sense that we've, we've kind of, we've, we've kind of missed uh, thinking about, well, you know, who's going to design the Jetsons flying car. And um, now, now we are, the, the wearable technology piece is becoming much more of a present reality. And so um, we, we are, are having conversations about that and, and we're acknowledging the role of design in that. But I think in large part it's because we're not even in our present day really giving enough thought to the role of design um, even today. Now, that's a wonderful, wonderful answer. I have one more question for you, and this is uh, an, an exclusive Afrofuturist podcast question. Uh-oh. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a forecasting question, and uh, it's something that we like to ask a lot of our guests when they're on the Afrofuturist podcast. If you had the power to write the headline of the New York Times Mm. in 10 years, what would that headline say? Oh, my gosh. This is the hardest question. What would that headline say? Um, Okay. I think the headline... Okay, this is going to be botched, but... Then headline would say something to the effect of turns out we needed humans after all. <laughs> so so all, <laughs> so all of the all of the uh, you know, the talk about AI and VR and AR and 
and actually I heard uh, there's some really interesting conversations about not just artificial intelligence, but artificial imagination, Yeah. because we can create algorithms that will, will produce a really great ditty, you know, a great yeah. piece of, of music. Um, but the most fascinating algorithms still need the most creatively framed questions. They still need that human um, element. So um, I'm still holding out that we will not be totally re re replaceable by automatons and ro robots and etc. Um, I, I and I believe that distinguishing ingredient ingredient is our our creative capacity. Um, that that is just um, magical. Right. I like that. Turns out human beings not so bad. <laughs> That's a great way yeah. to end it. Natalie Nixon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I could talk about this for hours. You are uh, a fantastic intellect and, and incredibly inspiring when it comes to creativity, design, anthropology, and all the things that you do. Can you please tell our audience where to find you? Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed, for having me. Um, this has been a lot of fun. And um, you can find my website at figure8thinking.com. So that's the word figure, the number eight, thinking.com. I also blog for Inc. Um, and I have a book on Amazon, which is called Strategic Design Thinking, um, Innovation in Products, Services, Experiences, and Beyond. I'm Thank gonna you. buy that book today. Awesome. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And really appreciate you being on the podcast. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at ahmedbest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll 